Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC. Terms and conditions apply. Hello and welcome to Slate Money, a weekly podcast devoted to the world of business and finance. I'm Felix Salmon, senior editor at Fusion. And today we're going to be talking about Credit Suisse, the Swiss bank convicted of conspiring to help tax evasion. Does the first criminal conviction of a big bank make a dent in the argument that big banks are too big to jail? We'll talk about the case for reparations, the 14,000-word essay from Tanahesi Coates in The Atlantic that is both more and less than an argument for writing checks to descendants of slaves. And then we'll talk about the quarter-million-dollar dinners that former Fed chairman Ben Bernanke has been having with investors. Is that business as usual? Is it corruption? Is it both? And finally, as ever, we will go around the table for a lightning round of interesting numbers from this past week. I'm joined in our New York studio by Kathy O'Neill, a former hedge fund quant who's now a watchdog of the industry. Hi, Kathy. Hi. And also Slate's Moneybox columnist and signed up true millennial Jordan Weissman. <laughs> Hello, Jordan. Hello, Felix. Hello. So, Jordan, you are going to start by telling us something about what Attorney General Eric Holder has been promising for weeks. So this week, the big event happened. Eric Holder came out and uh, announced that Credit Suisse, the Swiss bank, had uh, pleaded guilty to helping Americans evade their taxes for decades. For decades and decades, we're talking secret accounts, uh, cash in luggage being ferried around between the continents. 
And, of course, you know, people have been waiting and waiting for some bank to, to be convicted criminally for something. And so Eric Holder finally, who had previously suggested that maybe these mega banks were too big to jail in front of Congress and has been trying to walk it back ever since, got up in front of the American people and said no bank is too big or too important economically to face the law, you know, the consequences of their actions, you know, too big to jail. So what are the consequences of a guilty plea to a criminal activity? Almost nothing. Um, It's, you know, it's amazing because in order to secure, or at least it's very little, let's put it that way, in order to secure this guilty plea, essentially what uh, the Justice Department had to do was make sure that all of the worst potential consequences, uh, repercussions that they might face uh, wouldn't happen. They went and worked with regulators to say, we're not going to revoke, you know, the bank's uh, license, its charter. So so this is the New York... Bank regulators had this rule that if a bank was ever found guilty of a of criminal activity, then they would revoke that bank's license. And if you're not allowed to operate in New York, you basically have to shut down the entire bank because New York is a global banking center. Um, so in order to get this guilty plea, they first had to go along to the New York regulators and say, you know what, even though they plead guilty, you're not going to shut them down, are you? Well, you know, I... First of all, Credit Suisse is a very safe bank to start this new not-too-big-to-jail um, plan for uh, Eric Holder. That's, it's not very very convincing to me, at least. It doesn't have a lot of banking business, a typical sort of depositor banking business in New York to begin with. So, you know, the risk wasn't very high to begin with. But I you, do want to... You mean the risk of a bank run in New York? Yeah, that kind of... Or even just the risk of, of on Credit Suisse uh, for actually having penalties, which they're not having true penalties. We... Well, they had to pay $2.6 billion. Okay, they had a fine. They had a fine. So I just want to go back a little bit to, to the point of whether criminal charges is any different from a settlement. And I just want to make the point that from the perspective of this case, it doesn't look like it. But if we had a different case, it might have. So here's what I mean. Give me an example. Well, here's what criminal charges usually do. They usually set precedent. So if we found out that the bank was doing some kind of newfangled fraudulent thing and then they were found criminally guilty of that, then it would have set precedent for that being really criminal and fraudulent. Now, unfortunately, this example isn't a very good example of that because it's like probably the oldest crime imaginable, which is helping people evade taxes. Probably the only older crime is like evading taxes. But there are (laughs) lots of American banks who have and will in future help people evade taxes. Is this not a sign to say Citigroup that if they're found guilty of this, then they too will actually be faced with criminal charges? Well, that's when you go to the question of what are they actually, what are they facing in terms of punishment? And then what we see is a smallish fine, not a tiny fine, but, you know, certainly the people who made the, who actually disobeyed the law are not paying that fine. So that's important to remember. And then again, and we saw a whole lot of news this week about waivers and how even when there is something that uh, banks are told they can't do any longer because they were found doing it wrong, then the SEC waives that and they actually can keep doing it. And Credit Suisse's CEO has been walking around saying that all their business partners are still happy to do business with them. They're not even There's not even a stigma attached to it. It I has think, to be oh. said that in terms of the, the legal situation here, and we are getting down into the weeds, and I apologize for that on a Saturday morning. I know you don't want to be too gnarly, but the legal situation here is complicated by the fact that what the U.S. government wanted was for Credit Suisse to hand over the names of all of the Americans who hadn't been paying taxes. And Credit Suisse 
was absolutely correct in saying that it wasn't allowed to do that because that would be a violation of Swiss law. And they're a Swiss bank and they literally couldn't. So they wound up pleading guilty to a crime which they kind of were forced to commit under Swiss law. That may be true. I I still think this sets a really bad example in a lot of ways. Because when you look at the punishment they got, in the end, it was far lighter than what happened to Wegelin. It was another Swiss bank. It was... uh, To who, sorry? Wegelin. It was the oldest bank in Switzerland, was. And (laughs) because they also got wrapped up in this whole uh, tax evasion uh, issue, and they faced indictment in the U.S., um, even though they didn't... I I, I actually can't tell if they had much of a U.S. operation at all, other than helping people evade taxes. But they ended up having to sell off most of their assets and shut down what was left of the bank. Um, the oldest bank in Switzerland. When was this? This was, I am blanking on, it was a few years ago that they actually all shut down. But in the end, because this was a much smaller bank, they got raked over the coals by the Justice Department. By comparison, Credit Suisse, clearly its scale worked to its advantage. And that, that's not uh, encouraging. And I mean, economically, you understand why they do that. You don't want to have like a self-inflicted Lehman, not that that necessarily would have happened. But it's still, it, it goes to show that there's uh, advantages still to being very big when it comes to criminal justice. Yeah, I certainly don't think that we've really seen the end of too big to jail. We've just, well, we've seen a different manifestation. It's like if you're big enough, you, you don't actually get in trouble. And moreover, so, so wait, you don't pay yourself. I need to ask, what do you guys want? Jordan, are you saying that Credit Suisse should have been shut down? Kathy, are you saying that Credit Suisse should have been shut down? What, if this isn't enough, what would be condign punishment? I, I vastly, like I said, from an economic perspective, what happened to Credit Suisse, we're probably all better off that they weren't just shut down. I mean, I think that's pretty obvious. But, you know, I come from a perspective of it would be good maybe if these mega banks weren't so huge that they are actually above the law. But beyond that, if they are going to be of this size, then there has to be some mechanism to go after or hold uh, actual senior executives accountable. Or otherwise, they treat the fines as the cost of business. Well, there, there were criminal... They were low-level bankers, against, though. against, like, nine different Credit Suisse bankers. But they, were, they were low-level bankers in Switzerland. You know? Yeah, so I'm going to agree that there's two answers to that question. One, given our system now, given our system now, the answer is everyone involved, including the people in charge of the departments, should have been put in jail. And if we could go back and have a better system, we'd make these things less interconnected, less huge, and shut down banks when this kind of thing happens. You know, just it go, it oh. is true that, that Brady Dugan, the CEO of Credit Suisse, is one of the very few big bank CEOs to have basically kept his position through the financial crisis. He seems to be weirdly untouchable, and he's been a Credit Suisse executive, or admittedly mostly on the investment banking side rather than on the private banking side, which is where the criminal indictments happened. But there seems to be no call from shareholders or from regulators or for anyone for him to suffer any kind of personal repercussions from this. And I guess you two would both like to see him lose his job. At the, at the very, he was there while this was happening. You know, I mean, this was yeah. You know, he was he was the man in charge. And in the end, by helping people evade taxes, you're helping them steal from the U.S. taxpayer. It is the oldest crime in the book, like you said. If you're not going to face consequences for that, what are you going to face consequences for? On which note, we will move on to a different type of consequences. Here we are, three white people reading The Atlantic, the whitest activity you can possibly imagine. <laughs> the cover story is a 14,000-word essay by Tanahasi Coates about reparations and the plight of black America. Kathy, can you tell us what's going on here? 
Well, it's a great essay. It's a it's a long essay. Get it get, is very long. Get your uh, get your tea or your coffee ready. Basically, he defines reparations for slavery as a conversation, which you know people automatically want to skip to the end and say who gets paid, how they're going to get paid, and we can talk about that too. But I just want to make the point that he he's not saying that. He's actually saying we have to have this conversation as a nation to stop pretending to be color neutral and colorblind and stop pretending that we don't need affirmative action. In fact, embedded in this essay is the best argument I see for affirmative action, which he doesn't spell out. And I, I want to just do it just a little bit, which is to say that what he shows is that policies and laws have been racist in the past and that they have long-term effects and that these long-term effects will not go away by us just saying, okay, it's over now. We're not going to instill those policies anymore. It's, we're going to have to do more than that. And the, the only obvious way of doing that is to have policies that are actually going the other direction. And, and what he shows is that, for, I mean, the three of us are all white. We all benefit continuously, even today, from these policies which effectively impoverished millions of black Americans, not just during the slavery era and not just during Jim Crow, but well into the the 60s and 70s and really into the present day as well. These these things are still ongoing to the tune of, you know, $30, $40 billion a year. That is money which is not going to black people and should be and is going to white people instead. Yeah, so... What I thought was especially artful about this essay is that most arguments about reparations begin with slavery. And this essay does not begin with slavery. He begins it in mid-century Chicago. And he focuses it on policies like redlining and the way the federal government essentially denied mortgage loans to black people and forced them into these shady kind of under-the-table deals where they were sort of buying houses and ended up having their property more or less taken from them once they paid for it because of federal policy. Federal policy impoverished black America is his point. And it didn't stop in slavery. It didn't stop after Reconstruction. You know, it kept on going until at least the late 60s. So what Tanahesi is is calling for, when he, as Kathy, as you say, the, the cover line of the Atlantic is a little bit of a bait, bait and switch. It's saying the case for reparations, but it's not really the case for reparations. What he's saying is that he wants a kind of truth and reconciliation process. He just wants us to be talking more about this and more about what can and should be done. Uh, what do you think? Can well, I mean, I think we, I think we could go beyond the conversation. I'm just saying we have right. to start with the conversation. But since this is a slate money podcast, <laughs> is is there is there something financial which can and should be done to oh, sort yeah. of make up for this very shameful American history? Well, first of all, I, I just want to make the point that if you read the Podesta report on big data a couple of weeks ago that Obama commissioned, you'll see that it's still happening. Actually, in this essay, Coates talks about redlining, which is, you know, when the, the mortgages were denied to African-American families through the 30s, 40s, that the, the New Deal bypassed them. And it finally ended in 1968 with the Fair Housing Act, but it didn't really end. That's the point. And what we saw in the financial crisis, we saw reverse redlining, where, which is similar to what he describes there. What reverse redlining means is, yes, you can have a loan if you're an African-American, but you're going to have to pay more than you should. 
based on your credit history. And with the, going back to the Podesta report, what they said is that there's no reason to think that's not happening right now with big data models, that there's a discriminatory effect going on. So even before we start talking about how to fix stuff that happened in the past, let's talk about what's actually happening right now as a continuation of that. I think that that's very true. And what, what's frustrating is that the types of graft that go on get more subtle and kind of insidious and harder to spot. Um, a lot of what we found out about the housing crisis and, and that kind of reverse redlining came to light because of lawsuits where they just got to dig into these companies' files and would have it would be almost impossible to know without the power of subpoenas. And so it kind of goes further and further underground, but it's still there. Actually, it's, it's not but, but, completely but, but hang true. On a sec, but this makes it easy in a way. Mm-hmm. We can all agree that things should be fair and we can all agree that, you know, discrimination shouldn't happen in the present. And But the point about reparations is that we need more than just no discrimination in the present, hard slash impossible though that is. We actually also need to make up for the sins of the past. And so the question which I have for you is not you know, are there things which we can do in the present to make things more fair in the present? But are there things which we can do in the present to make reparation for the sins of the past? Okay, well, I agree. We should go past the, you know, making things fair. So give me an but example. Let's of... start with making things okay. fair. Okay, okay. So, but so yes. neither you nor Tanahesi actually wants to come out and give an example. No, of I do want to give done. an example. Actually, okay. let's. If you want me to go there, Piketty's wealth tax—that's a source of money, and is a direct line into the results of uh, slavery and then Jim Crow and then the, the where did the wealth accumulate in white households? And one, of, and one of the pernicious effects of this institutionalized racism, which was in effect in the United States for well over a century, is that black families at every single point on the income scale have much, much less wealth than white families. And so, yes, a wealth tax would disproportionately affect whites and conversely benefit blacks. That would be one way of doing it. Yeah, I mean, I think part of the the difficulty um, in saying what should we do is that when you actually start trying to put a fair number on what was slavery worth, for instance, um, you get into some incredibly high figures. I mean, you, you, there, there have been some academic attempts to quantify what slaves' labor you know, was valued at. And if you added 4 or 5% interest per year, for instance, or versions of that exercise, and you start getting into the many trillions of dollars. Well, Coates makes, a, makes the point in his essay that the value of the slaves in America was actually greater than the value of the cotton or the value of the land. Absolutely. You know, that was, it, was, it was massive. And so that's why I think it's difficult to have this conversation because off the bat, in a you know, fantasy world, you could say, okay, we're going to do a trillion dollars over 10 years or something in cash payments. I mean, and you do see proposals like that coming out of academia once in a while. And you, you see that number. And at that point, you start to say to yourself, what else would we be sacrificing uh, in terms of a liberal project if you wanted to do that? I do think that... What would we, what would we be sacrificing? Wouldn't we have a lovely fiscal stimulus? Well, that, is, that, is, that is actually... One of the funny parts in the essay is um, at, during uh, Reconstruction, there was a Southern senator who wanted reparations for blacks because he thought it would be stimulus for the South that had been so demolished during the war. In the academic literature now, people do bring up the fact that giving cash payments could, in the end, enrich everybody because it would be a stimulus. I do think that 
uh, there's there there's some academics at Duke, for instance, who talk about the portfolio approach, quote, you know, quote unquote, um, which is no, we're not reparations aren't going to be um, just you know money that we're going to hand out, but it's going to be job training, it's going to be things like you know discounts on mortgages, whatnot, just sort of a a variety of ways to try and and right the wrongs of the past, um, and I, I think that if if you were to ever somehow get the American people to a point where they could accept the idea of reparations. And right now, it, it, the polling on it is on even giving an apology to black Americans for slavery, an official apology. I think it's a third of whites are even even want that. Uh, yeah. We're saying literally for Congress to say we are sorry about slavery. Yeah. So getting to the point where we can actually talk about real reparations, when, when Ta-Nehisi says we need truth and reconciliation as a first step, he really, really means it. Yes. I mean, we're so far away. I do want to have the conversation. I, and I just want to add one more thing in terms of what we should actually be doing is once we have that conversation, we should be ending the war on drugs. Because yeah. that, if you've read the new Jim Crow, is a large part of the present day manifestation of, of these kinds of things we're talking about. So we're, we're not going to be writing large checks anytime soon, which means it's not necessarily a... But who is getting a large check? But who is getting a large check? <laughs> oh, God. Oh, the Jordan Wiseman, the Segway King. Seriously. <laughs> uh, the, the man who is getting a large check from, not from the government, but from Wall Street, is Mr. Ben S. Bernanke, uh, the former... F- chairman of the New York Fed, he has been on the road having dinner with a bunch of um, hedge funders and Wall Street types. And at the end of the dinner, he he doesn't split the check. He doesn't pick up the check. In fact, he receives a check for $250,000. Kathy, is this is it, this this doesn't smell particularly no, tasteful, it, does it? It really doesn't. And you know, I know I'm going to sound old fashioned, um, but we're not, you know, we're not asking enough from our public servants if we allow this kind of thing to happen without any question. And I'm going to I know you're going to tell me, Jordan, that like, oh, who wouldn't take a two hundred fifty thousand dollar check? But I ha- I just want to say for the record, I have more sympathy for Clinton accepting a blowjob under his desk than I have for this guy, because the truth is, like, we, we all have our own vision of who we are to ourselves and when Bernanke takes that money, he is selling himself. Jordan? I mean, I'm not going to, insofar as any government official is selling themselves after they leave public office. Yeah, I mean, yes, Bernanke is selling an appearance. To me, it's almost the same as you know, the, the speaker circuit where a former president gets you know, six figures to show, or not even a former president, but former generals and whatnot, get six figures to show up and talk to a company. And, you know, it, it, it's actually but, different from that because this isn't just about look at this famous person who we've got to speak to us. The reason why these hedge funders are going to these dinners is because they think they can make money off it. Well, they can that, get some kind of inside that, information and they want to know what Ben Bernanke is thinking because they are rightfully convinced that the Fed policies – right now are basically exactly Ben Bernanke's policies. I think you're right that there is some difference there. I think that's going to fade pretty quickly. I also, I mean... Which is why he's doing so many of these dinners right right now. now. Also, you know, what what strikes me about this, honestly, is what the reports are coming out that Ben Bernanke is saying to them, you know, that essentially rates are going to stay low for a long time, guys. Might not go up for my lifetime, whatever, you know, which is essentially Ben Bernanke sitting there saying... Yeah, you know, I got a feeling about what might come up in the next 20 years. I mean, this is not – this does not sound like he is spouting gold here. It's You could pretty much 
if you are not locked into a sort of 1970s mindset, as a lot of guys on Wall Street are about inflation and such, you can pretty much tell from everything Janet Yellen has said publicly that rates are not going to go up anytime that soon. Um, and so unless like there's a lot that he's saying that isn't being reported, that, that hasn't leaked out and he really is giving inside information that is confidential and he's not like legally not supposed to be sharing, it seems like the actual – content of these talks is not particularly harmful. The optics are not... But, well, no one's saying it's harmful. Or is not, is not exactly Wait, I'm that just, valuable. I think it's relatively harmful. Who, who is, not who's that being valuable. harmed, Kathy? Not that valuable, let um, me rephrase. Me? I'm, my, the trust of the people in this country? Um, you know, I just want to make the back up for one second and just look at who this guy is. And he's a Princeton professor with a Nobel Prize. Am, am I correct? He doesn't have a Nobel Prize, oh, but he oops. is a Princeton professor. Okay, oops. <laughs> um, he's an economics professor at Princeton. He's making easily $300,000 a year. He made $200,000 a year at the Fed. Like the guy isn't like taking a, a vow of poverty by refusing to do these kinds of gigs. I, I'm just like, we're not asking too much for him to not give inside information to hedge funds and banks right after he leaves the Fed. It just, it's, you know, it's something that it's not a law. I get that. But for his own self regard, why doesn't he understand what what this looks like to the rest of us? Well, I'm going, I'm going to try to mount some kind of a defense of Bernanke here. Uh, you know, I think the Jordan Weissman defense of there's not much value to these things is is a weak defense, but it's true as far as it goes, that if you look at the public speeches of Ben Bernanke when he was Fed chair, of Janet Yellen now, of Mark Carney as head of the Bank of England, you know, it, you can get probably more value out of reading those public speeches than you can about uh, uh, having a private dinner. That said, there's a long tradition of the Fed chair meeting with Wall Street bankers. And one of the things that you find when you read Tim Geithner's book, because we can't possibly finish one of these podcasts without mentioning <laughs> Tim Geithner's book, True. is that he would invite Ben Bernanke up to the New York Fed for dinner with a bunch of Wall Street titans, CEOs, hedge fund managers, that kind of thing. And they would mingle and talk and have discussions off the record and certainly no journalists are ever invited to these things. And this happens as a matter, of course, with the sitting Fed chair for free. If you're going to be doing that kind of thing for free with Wall Street when you are the, 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 the sitting Fed chair, at that point, you start wondering, well, what's the harm in just continuing that tradition, but this time getting paid for it? That's a defense. That's a really, <laughs> really poor defense. I want to throw in that, you know, one of the things that bothers me about the $250,000 is that I can't personally afford that. But I do think as, a, as an occupier, as a taxpayer, I should be able to also have access to Ben Bernanke. What are the chances he's going to say, yeah, I'll come and talk to you guys? Like, he's an academic. I'm an academic. We don't charge for our time. We, well, we, you know what? We'll, we'll put, a, we'll put the, the ask out. I'll send him an email awesome. and I'll ask him to come on to Slate Money and see if we can have a dinner with him. Or maybe not a dinner, maybe just sit, sit him around this table for the podcast. And we, you know, for no money at all. We'll and see just what he says. tell him to prove that he can still do that kind of thing for free. <laughs> I, you know, I guess my the one point I will I, I would add on to this is I, I think it, it goes to show the degree to which people outside of government often overestimate the value of the opinions of people who have recently left government because it's not just Ben Bernanke. You see this in the lobbying world too. You know, people leave Congress, they leave the executive branch. And the private sector swarms and goes, oh, they must have all this information. It turns out they, they often um, 
don't. Well, can I make another point, though? <laughs> yeah. It's not just the information they have now, but the fact that they might very well go back into government. And that is, that is to- I, I think that is a very fair point. And one of the reasons why I don't have the kind of revulsion to, and, and perhaps and perhaps I should have the revulsion, but towards what Bernanke is doing is my sense is he's not heading back into government, that he's probably not going to be back anytime soon. Maybe I'm, you know, maybe that's not true. We didn't think Larry Summers was going to come back, but he did. That's the return. And And, he might again. And and (laughs) again, the current Treasury Secretary, Jack Lewis, a prime example of someone who just revolves back and forth between the public sector and the private sector. And it's absolutely clear that one of the reasons he is so well paid in the private sector is because he manages to get these very powerful jobs in the public sector. Yeah. In fact, he got a huge amount of money to do that, leaving Citigroup to go into Treasury in, in his contract. So he actually had an incentive to grab that job. And I, I think that is there's sort of a bright line there, right, where you actually have somebody who is working at a corporation that says, please, for the love of God, go get more power and access and influence, where it's obvious that the reason they want him to is so that he can come back at some point. Again, that when, when I look at these dinners and Bernanke is saying these sort of anodyne things about you know where interest rates may be heading – it doesn't strike me as quite the same, but I guess you're talking about a spectrum and also the potential for a slippery slope. And um, as you know, Lou shows, it can be very, very, very slippery. Which brings us to our numbers. We all have numbers this week. I am going to start off because okay. why not? Um, my numbers is, is 3.6 million. Um, and it's not really a particularly interesting number on its own. It's more of a plug. The the number is the number of dollars that was raised in investment capital by one of the cilia dot coms out there called Washio, um, which is which is one of these. There are dozens of them. These startups started up by one or two dudes who have just left college and realized that there's this thing called laundry, which is a pain. And so they're like, you know, we're going to set up a we'll do your laundry for you dot com. And, um, and everyone seems to have the same idea. And they're all guys in their 20s. And it's all I can say is pick up a copy of New York magazine, go to nymag.com and read Jessica Pressler's story about these laundry dudes. It is one of the best things ever written about the latest dot com bubble. And you will find the $3.6 million number in there, but you will also find lots and lots of just awesome observations. So go read the article. Oh, my God. It reminds me of I was in line for getting a coffee with a friend of mine, and he was having trouble with his disorganized wallet. And he was like, isn't there a startup that can solve this problem for me? <laughs> like the Costanza every, problem, like the fat wallet. <laughs> every nuisance needs to, needs to have a huge amount of funding for it. Yeah. Um, my number is 43. So there was an NPR survey, which came out this week. Um, which attempted to survey the 50 states and the District of Columbia to understand the extent to which defendants are charged for various things. And it turns out in 43 states, defendants can be billed for their free public defender. It's also true that they could be charged for things like room and board. I think that's 44 states. And I think in every state, and possibly the District of Columbia, you can also be charged for that electronic bracelet if you have to carry that around and go home with it. Well, that's wildly depressing. My number is 300,000, which is uh, how much apparently Macklemore, uh, the rapper, uh, charges to play a college campus. A uh, third-party booking agency uh, or someone from it leaked a huge list of what these artists charge to play. And while pouring through it, I know something especially devastating, which is that 
Uh, Macklemore makes about $150,000 more per performance than Kendrick Lamar, who, as we all know, also was uh, robbed of the Grammy for Best Rap Album uh, this year by Macklemore. Uh, so just, I guess, you know, in art and commerce, just nothing is fair. Nothing at all. Uh, and on the subject of fees, I will add one more number, which is a fake number. Macklemore gets $300,000 per appearance. Ben Bernanke gets $250,000 per appearance. There is a man you might have heard of if you were watching the movies last year called Jordan Belfort, the Wolf of Wall Street, as was. Oh, my God, yes. And Jordan Belfort is on a speaking tour right now, and he owes the people that he ripped off about $50 million. And he claims that this speaking tour is going to make him $100 million this year, and that's going to allow him to repay his um, the people that he owes. And all I can say is, no way. It is completely impossible that he is going to earn anything like $100 million. And of course, you should not go and see him speak. But also, if you needed any more proof that Jordan Belfort remains a sleazy li- liar, <laughs> this is that proof. Has, Even Macklemore couldn't make that kind has, of money. Has anybody done the math on what it would actually take to accomplish that? Like, you know, you see those Santa maps, like actually, how long it would take. I actually <laughs> did the math, and I, and I talked to... Um, Wes Neff, who's a speaking agent, and, and a couple of people I know who make real money on the speaking circuit, it just it basically just can't be done. Okay. We will leave it there on that wolfish note. You can write to us with your comments and your complaints and your ideas. And your love. And your love. Especially your Lots love. Lots of compliments, please. We, we thrive on those. Slate money at slate.com. And people, please subscribe to Slate Money in iTunes or any podcasting app of your choice. Leave us a rating in the iTunes store. That's one of the best ways to help other people discover how awesome this show really is. Just search for Slate Money in the iTunes store and give us ideally a high rating. Would be nice. Um, Or any rating, if you must. The producers for Slate Money are Stan Alcorn and Tracy Samuelson. The executive producer of all the Slate's podcasts is Andy Bowers. You should listen to all of them, not just this one. For Kathy O'Neill and Jordan Weissman, I'm Felix Salmon. We'll talk to you again next week on Slate Money. Save big money when you start your next project today at Menards. Convert your current recessed lighting with energy-saving LED downlights from Fight Electric. They're bright and install easily in just minutes. They also go from regular lighting to nightlight mode with just a simple flip of a switch. Save big on all Fight Lighting products now at Menards. Shop our lighting options today in-store and on Menards.com. Save big.